Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Good morning. Well, at least it's morning here in Boston. I don't know when or where you're listening, but good morning, good day, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome back to another podcast, another episode of the podcast, The Birth Lounge Podcast. Happy Tuesday, you guys. Oof. 2020. Yikes. I was about to say, this week has been hard, but then I think, wow, this month has been hard, and then I think, ooh, these last six months have been hard, and then I think, ooh, ooh, this whole year, except January and February, were really, really hard, and you know what, even the beginning of the year, I actually started off 2020, January 4th, with a death in our family, Yikes, this whole year has just been incredibly crazy. Am I right? Just crazy. Well, I wanted to bring a little bit of normalcy back to you, but I don't think I did that in this episode because we're going to be talking about one of the things that I think nobody knows about. And this is a failed induction. Did you know that you could actually go to the hospital for a scheduled induction and it fail and you be sent home with no baby and also not in labor? It's true. It happens. Not often. And I would say, you know, the more educated you are on your your choices – probably the less likely you have to be manipulated into an unnecessary C-section. You at least will know that a failed induction is a thing and that you are allowed to go home. In this episode, we're also going to talk about your typical induction methods and what you need to know about each of those. I'm going to be sharing my ideas on your individual induction equation. If you don't follow me on Instagram, head over to Instagram and find me at Tranquility by Hehe. And you can find us at the birth lounge at the.birth.lounge. And I talk about failed inductions, induction methods, the different ways that you can be induced, plus what those mean for your birth later down the road, how you can stack different induction methods and the ones that don't stack right? All right. I'm going to stop rambling because this episode is so, so good. So let me please introduce you to one of my friends, Becca Healy. And I'm looking at her intro here and it is Rebecca. I don't call her Rebecca and I assume that none of you will either once you connect with her on Instagram. She's not a Rebecca. She's totally a Becca. She's down to earth. She's cool. She's just the girl next door. And She's also a badass midwife. I connected with her on Instagram, obviously, where I find all of my friends. And Becca instantly was this warm soul. 
She also has this really dig deep of diva side to her, which, duh, that spoke straight to my big old diva heart. Becca is one of the most golden, genuine people you'll ever meet, and so I'm thrilled to have her on the show today. She's an expert in all things prenatal care, labor, birth, and women's health throughout the lifespan. Sounds like exactly what I did in my master's, although, you know, the whole lifespan wasn't really my jam. Becca earned her bachelor's in nursing from Brigham Young University in Idaho and worked for several years as an L&D nurse before earning her master's in nursing from the University of Cincinnati. Becca is certified by the American Midwifery Certification Board, is a member of the American College of Nurse Midwives, and is an educational affiliate of ACOG. Her favorite parts about women's health are, I mean, just get ready, right? Shared decision-making. Empowering women, ding! Patient education, ding! And mentoring students. Now, that last one isn't something that I do, but I do mentor new doulas, so I hope, I'm sure, that you can see exactly why I'm so excited to have Becca on the show today. P.S. If you follow along with her Instagram, you're going to get to know her little girl Jane, her husband Todd, and their precious little dog. Please head over to Instagram and give her a follow at the end of the episode. We'll give you all the information that you can use to connect with Becca. So without further ado, Becca, welcome to the show. Yay, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here too. And for our listeners, Becca and I just chatted for legitimately an entire (laughs) hour before this podcast got started, Um, just chatting about birth and all the things we've been seeing lately, I'm really, really, really excited for you guys to join us in this conversation today. Um, first of all, Beck and I share in a lot of the same sentiments. I think that we we think very similarly in the ways that we approach birth and the ways that we approach mm-hmm. consent and patient choice and the ways that mm-hmm. we approach, um, you know, support for both medicated and unmedicated labors, but also in support of people just being in control of their own stories. And for mm-hmm. me, that was one of the biggest reasons that I connected with Becca and on Instagram is how we first originally met. And it has been such an instant connection because everything she says, it speaks directly to my heart. And I hope that mm-hmm. at the end of this you. conversation, you will take away the same things from Becca and you guys can find her on Instagram at the end. We're going to tell you all the places you can connect with her. But today, Becca and I are going to be talking about inductions. And this is a sticky-ish topic and I think <laughs> people have strong feelings and um you know I I can't lie I typically don't have great feelings about inductions and for me being Becca's friend and watching her on Instagram I have learned so much and I think she brings a very good perspective that is a healthy balance to my sometimes <laughs> very strong anti-induction um feelings and so that's what this conversation is going to be about so Becca Opening thoughts on inductions from you. So I agree. I think there is a lot of fear and maybe a bad taste about inductions out there. And my whole purpose in my practice and on my Instagram is educating. And I don't want people to fear birth. And I don't want people to fear um, certain interventions in birth. So in my practice, like he, he said, we both really connect on shared decision-making, patient choice, education. So if my patients choose to be induced, then I educate them on what an induction is like, the risks, the benefits, um, and how that, that would go, because I don't want them to be fearful. So if there was a medical indication for induction, you know, I don't want them to be so scared of induction that it impedes their labor or impedes their labor progress um, or puts any unnecessary anxiety into their life that we're all already experiencing. Or on their baby, right? So inductions Mm -hmm. are already kind of stressful because you feel a lot of times we feel out of control. But I do want to touch on the fact that you serve a population that actually uses inductions as a means to control things and to Mm -hmm. actually have better birth, mm-hmm. birth that they feel really supported about. But I think mm-hmm. sometimes a lot of times actually makes people feel out of control because this is a place mm-hmm. they never wanted their birth to get right. to. And so 
inductions have this way of already stressing out the birthing parent and baby. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about how we can use inductions as a way to control things and actually put the control back into the birthing people's hands? Um, that's a good question. I think, you know, one, and this really isn't a reason to be induced technically, but one of the, the great draws to induction is scheduling. And I mean, it just kind of cringy even saying that because no one wants their birth necessarily to be scheduled, but it can be beneficial in certain populations. Like I was explaining to he, he before this, like I chose to be induced with my birth and that made me feel less anxiety and more control because I was in midwifery school. I was doing clinicals. I knew I needed that fourth trimester with my daughter, even just a couple of weeks to, to heal because, you know, there's more to think about than just the birth, right? It's, we so often focus on the actual delivery and then we kind of neglect the mother afterwards in that fourth trimester. And so there's a lot that goes into it. The number one reason really for induction is going to be those medical indications, whether it be um, uncontrolled gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, intrauterine growth restriction, or any other indication that your provider recommends that you be induced. Um, however, like I, I said before, what's critical is that you know how the induction goes because there's a right and a less right way to be induced it's important that your body is ready. And if your body isn't ready, you know, even so let's say if you ha are having an elective induction, medical inductions, let's just not talk about those at this time, because there's a lot that could go into this, but for an elective induction, you know, say that the method that you're being induced with isn't working for you, back up, just back it up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you touch on a good point that everyone is going to have their own, I call it your, your induction equation, everyone's going to have their own equation mm -hmm. on how they need to be induced. And there are so many exactly. studies about all sorts of different ways to be induced. And I mm -hmm. think finding whatever equation works for you is mm -hmm is just so crucial. And mm -hmm. you're so right about the, the birthing parents, mental health, your choice to be induced is all you need as a reason, right? If you have mm -hmm. reached the point in your labor where you're in your pregnancy, where you are like, look, keeping this mm -hmm. baby on the inside and not getting this labor started is mm -hmm. going to be more harmful to me mental health wise. Mm -hmm. than if I just go ahead and have an induction, it is right for you to get an yeah. induction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about this. How do we be induced? You talked about right and a yeah. little less right about our equation. Mm -hmm. How do we put together this equation? What is the right and a little mm -hmm. less right way to be mm -hmm. induced? So have you talked about the Bishop score on here before? I have. I have. So there so, is a yeah, refer back onto that. Yep. <laughs> um, educate yourself on the Bishop score. Um, so basically, in short, the Bishop score is kind of a measurement on how ready, so to speak, your cervix is to open up and dilate or how willing it will be to respond to an induction. Now, I choose to treat patients, not numbers. And so simply looking at the Bishop score isn't gonna give me the information I need. Um, it's discussing with the patient, her birth preferences. It's doing that cervical exam, of course, and then talking about the different ways. And now, my, it's my preference to always err on the side of cervical ripening. So in order of getting the body ready for an induction, if your cervix is like tight, close, thick, no sign of labor anywhere, if we were just to hook you up to an IV and start that Pitocin, your cervix may not budge, may not budge for 24 hours. You may end up a C-section or your induction may go just fine. However, Evidence shows that if we encourage that cervix to soften up, to dilate just a little bit more, maybe a face a little more, and then we start the induction with Pitocin and get your labor going that way, there is a significant decrease in your risk for C-section or other complications of labor. So if my patients are like 
less than three centimeters or if they're not very effaced, I am 10 out of 10 going to recommend cervical ripening. And there's basically two methods that you can go about cervical ripening. One is going to be a medical choice, which is going to be a medication. And then the other is mechanical. And that is going to be a physical softening of the cervix. Now, as far as medical techniques for cervical ripening, the two, I'll just talk about the two medications that we typically use. Um, and they're both prostaglandins and prostaglandins are those natural substances that your body makes that kind of trigger cervical ripening, trigger you going into labor. Now, um, the first one is going to be a pill. You can either put it in your cheek, you can swallow it, or it can be placed vaginally. Um, it's called misoprostol. It's also known as Cytotec. Now that one's great because it does stimulate the uterine contractions, that myometrial activity, along with the prostaglandins going ahead and softening that cervix. So it can go ahead and throw you into spontaneous labor. Um, the second option is going to be a prostaglandin insert. Um, and that's going to be like a cervidil. And that is placed vaginally up by the cervix to soften up the cervix that way. Now, pros and cons of each of those medical management options. Um, the pros that you do get that myometrial contraction activity in addition to the cervical softening. Um, cons are with the pill, once you take it, there's no going back. And so if you were to have any type of fetal heart rate distress, or if you were to have tachycystole, which is where you contract too much too often, then you have to go ahead and get another medication to stop the contractions. And so then we're just backtracking. Um, and with the cervidil vaginal insert that can be removed. And, but however, you, again, to stop the instant effects, you remove it, but then you have to give um, terbutaline or something to stop those contractions. Um, and so there's definitely pros and cons to going the medical way of cervical ripening. Me personally, it depends on the patient, you know, and each case is just so different. And I think really all providers should be looking at their patient as an individual. For me to say that I give every person cervidil would be just ridiculous. Or for me to say I do mechanical methods on every single patient, um, contraindications to these prostaglandin medical cervical ripening agents is for our TOLAC or VBAC patients. If you do have any history of prior uterine surgery, it's not recommended because there is that risk for contracting too much too often, putting unnecessary stress on that uterus. And so that leads us into the second option for cervical ripening, which is your mechanical methods. And then again, there's two options. You're going to have something called the Cook catheter and then something called the Foley catheter. Now, the Foley involves one cervical ripening balloon and it's a thin flexible tube. They'll place it, it like if you've ever had a pap smear, they'll use a, a speculum just like that to visualize the cervix. And then they'll insert the catheter through the cervix right up next to the baby's head inside the uterus. And then they'll inflate that balloon full of like saline or sterile water and just leave it there. <laughs> and it puts pressure on the cervix and also releases some prostaglandins just by the fact that it's irritating the uterus. It's in that space between the amniotic sac and the uterine wall. And so for some people, even just having that balloon in place will trigger labor. Um, and the purpose of that is again, to put pressure onto that cervix and hopefully soften it up and get it to dilate. With that Foley balloon, which is the single balloon catheter, we allow our patients to go home with that. So we'll place it in office. We'll be like, let that work overnight. See you in the morning for the rest of your induction. Um, and that's a really great option because it decreased costs from being in the hospital. And it's more comfortable because you can continue to labor at home. And hey, if you do happen to go into labor just from the placement of the Foley balloon, you can labor at home. Um, and so it's kind of a great starting option for people who are still hoping to go into spontaneous labor. Um, the second is gonna be that double balloon catheter. And for this, we do um, have people stay overnight in the hospital for monitoring with this. 
Um, and you, one balloon will be placed inside the uterus, just like with the Foley balloon. And then another balloon will be placed um, vaginally. It's all part of the same catheter, but these two balloons kind of act like a sandwich to smush that cervix, soften it up, get it to dilate. Um, and so they, they have a similar mechanism of action, but work a little bit differently. Typically with the Cook catheter, which is gonna be that double balloon catheter, it's inflated a lot more. And so it can be pretty uncomfortable. I mean, imagine having an 80 mil balloon in your vagina, like that just doesn't feel good. However, the benefit is so much more than risking, is my cervix gonna soften and dilate with only the addition of Pitocin. So why does someone need to stay in the hospital and be admitted with a cook balloon, that double balloon versus the Foley, the single balloon? Mm -hmm. The single balloon, we only inflate like 30 to 50 mils. It's just a small amount of fluid. It's only in the uterus. Babies tolerate it fine. Moms usually tolerate it fine. With the cook catheter, we inflate it 60 to 80 mils on either side. It's a significant more amount of pressure on that cervix. We usually don't see a lot of fetal heart rate problems with the cook catheter. Um, but if we were to, we're in an environment that we can manage that or even monitor it. I just typically don't do continuous monitoring with my um, cook catheters. It's just not necessary unless you start going into labor. And it's much more common because of the larger size of the balloons with the cook to get thrown into labor um, and for things to go on. And if the cook catheter falls out, usually patients are at least six centimeters just for the diameter of that 80 mil balloon to slip out of the cervix. Um, they're going to be at least around six centimeters. And at that point, they're needing some type of um, pain coping and things like that. So honestly, um, monitoring, pain relief are the two main things. That is amazing. I love so much how we just went through all of these options to make exactly your induction equation, right? You have mm -hmm. all these options. And I think you did a very beautiful job of laying out that it truly depends on what your body is doing at this time in mm -hmm. this pregnancy slash labor, like even second time, third, second and third time parents, your body's going to be different at this point than it was in your previous mm -hmm. labors. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. I love that so much. Going back a little bit to TOLEC and VBAC, mm -hmm. those parents need to start with mechanical versus mm -hmm. medical induction. Is that correct? Yeah. So versus the medication or mechanical, mechanical VBAC is going to be a contraindication to those prostaglandins because like I said, once they're in, they're not out. And you are decreasing your chance of having a successful VBAC if you're starting out your labor with a ineffective or too frequent, too strong contraction pattern you're going to run into issues like fetal heart rate issues. You're gonna run into issues where that uterus just isn't tolerating the labor because with a TOLAC and a VBAC, I am 100,000% a supporter of VBAC, but I also understand that there are risks in having a vaginal birth after a C-section. And so knowing those risks, I want to be able to give you that individualized attention to your uterus. We're, we're bathing that uterus when you're in labor as a VBAC. And so giving you something like a prostaglandin that we can't really take back is not a smart choice. So let's talk about inductions for a VBAC because we actually support quite a number of VBACs. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we reach the point where we do have to induce, but we are mm -hmm. really still hanging on to our birth goals of having mm -hmm. a vaginal delivery. Mm -hmm. What can this look like? We are going to start with a balloon or a catheter of some mm -hmm. sort, and then is yeah. Pitocin appropriate? Can we talk mm -hmm. about the risk of Pitocin mm -hmm. in, in VBACs? Mm -hmm. Now you may be thinking, you just said that we don't want to give medication to VBAC because we're babying that uterus. However, Pitocin works differently than prostaglandins. It is still a medication, right? And we're still making that uterus do something. However, we can adjust the Pitocin so minutely to get you that perfect dose for your body. 
we there's different um protocols for increasing pitocin however in my hospital we increase it one to two milliliters per hour so that's like one to two drops per hour of pitocin that you're getting up until you're in an adequate contraction pattern based on the frequency of your contractions the strength of your contractions and then how baby's tolerating that now ACOG says that you can absolutely use pitocin on a VBAC and I think a lot of providers are afraid of inducing a VBAC or there's so many providers who don't even accept VBAC patients and sure they absolutely have a right to be concerned and be careful about that but I don't think that there is reason to be fearful and that's like my whole purpose is taking away that fear from people so if I had a patient who was wanting a trial of labor after c-section and she was like I said less than three centimeters not very effaced I would recommend that she get a mechanical cervical ripening because she's a VBAC I would want her on continuous monitoring so I would put her um, I would probably recommend this cook catheter for her and then that gives her cervix a chance to soften up to dilate a face a little more we maybe that catheter falls out and she's ready for labor support, or maybe we, after 12 hours, we end up removing the catheter, but her cervix is now like 80% thinned out and she's four centimeters. So she's at a really great starting point. Then we can add that Pitocin on to help her to contract at an interval that we want, but we can also back off on the Pitocin or add more fluids. And so there's a, it's a lot easier to manipulate Pitocin than it is with other oral medications. If that makes any sense. That makes total sense. I also want to touch on this study that we were chatting about before that shares about inductions using Pitocin and breaking waters early on. Mm -hmm. um, and that definition is, is four centimeters or before. So zero mm -hmm. to four centimeters, mm -hmm. but with the use of Pitocin as well mm -hmm. for an induction. Yeah. So in the birth world and especially in the midwifery world, we're always thinking, you know, how are we going to use evidence-based practice and how are we going to give the best um, experience to the birthing person? Now, breaking water has a lot of, I will say conflicting evidence out there based on my own clinical practice and based on what we're reading out there in the literature. It I support that. that. I yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, basically what the research says is that early amniotomy, which means breaking the water early, is associated with three to five hour shorter labors when you're inducing with Pitocin. Now, this is not talking about spontaneous labor. This is talking specifically about inductions. So when you're being induced, it is most beneficial to have your water broken if you're less than four centimeters and on Pitocin. So that allows the uterus to contract more effectively, dilate that cervix, get that head applied. And now, just because we were mentioning about BVACs, um, I will say that it is a very smart decision to break your water with a VBAC because um, starting with that water ruptured, you're getting the most effective uterine contractions and the most effective pressure of the head on that cervix in addition to the Pitocin with the least amount of pressure on that uterine incision. If the water is not ruptured and you're contracting, that's fine. However, the pressure of that amniotic sac is also putting pressure on that uterine incision. And so from a safety standpoint, breaking the water is going to put the least amount of pressure on that uterine incision and give you a better chance of having a successful vaginal birth after C-section. So when I do, let's say for example, um, I'm inducing a patient electively, um, she chose to do the cook catheter overnight after we talked about it, um, we removed it in the morning, so if we're starting Pitocin that morning, we'll start Pitocin, gently titrate up until she's in an effective contraction pattern. And I will break her water if she's less than four centimeters. Um, and that will hopefully shorten the length of her labor um, as the evidence shows. Now, if she was in spontaneous labor, I'm not just gonna go break her water at four centimeters when she shows up to the hospital. So that's why I say it's so, individualized the patient care 
when you're doing things. And that's why I want to get this information out there because I think so many people are just like, think all inductions are bad or all breaking water is bad or, you know, nothing in the birth world is black and white. There's so many gray areas. And that's why it's so important to have a doula to stand up for you, to have a provider who honors your wishes and who listens to what you care about and who isn't afraid to tell you the good, bad, the ugly, and answer all your questions. It's just honesty. It it really, Mm -hmm. it just comes Mm -hmm. down to providers that believe in consent and they understand Mm -hmm. patient choice and have the ability to separate, you know, themselves and their experiences from that patient's choice and really respect that. Even if as a provider, you're like, yikes, I would not choose that. It is really important, right? Okay, so mm-hmm. I have two questions. What yeah. if, and I want you to, I want you to answer on both a VBAC and then someone who's not a VBAC. Um, mm-hmm. What if, as we're titrating up that pitocin and we're waiting for contractions to get into a regular pattern, mm-hmm. we are right on the verge of four centimeters. Do we go mm-hmm. ahead and break that water before we're in a regular pattern, or do mm-hmm. we wait? I would. And it depends. So kind of, and he and I were talking about this prior to the podcast, but think of the mechanics of that cervical reddening balloon. Think of 80 milliliters of fluid. That's like, what, like, I don't even know a tennis ball, probably smaller, but a little smaller than a tennis ball in between your cervix and your baby's head. That's a lot of space. So if I were to remove that cook catheter, and then instantly check your cervix, break your water. That's a lot of space between your cervix, the amniotic fluid in the baby's head for other things to come out, like maybe the baby's hand coming up by the head, which is going to make your labor longer, pushing harder. Maybe even the umbilical cord coming out, which is an obstetric emergency. Um, and so what I will usually do with my patients is I will have the balloon removed by the nurses, and then they'll start the Pitocin to get that head down closer to the cervix to close that gap where the balloon was in between the cervix and the baby's head. So that when I come in and do my morning rounds, I check the cervix. I'm always ensuring that the fetal head is pressed tight against that cervix so that when we do rupture those membranes, nothing else is coming out that gives the baby the best chance to go into the optimal position for birth. So even if she, you know, maybe she comes out and the catheter comes out and she's five centimeters, I'd still break that water because this is a mechanical dilation, right? It's not that she has been in active labor and has contracted herself to five centimeters. She's only five centimeters because she's had a vice on her cervix for the last 12 hours, you know? So another thing that I will warn you about is if you do have a mechanical cervical ripening like that, and, um, you know, you don't start going into active labor for another six to 12 hours don't freak out like you literally weren't in labor until we started that pitocin just because you had the balloon in your five centimeters doesn't mean that you've been in active labor to five centimeters and now you're having a prolonged or stalled labor no we have to gradually get that labor going and and so that's something to be aware of just because we start the pitocin doesn't mean you're in active labor Totally. That makes so much sense. Okay. And I'm about to ask this question and I know the answer to this question, but I just want to hear a professional and someone, you know, who's actually in medicine. Not just doula say this and, and don't say just to, a doula. I mean, you know, I just want to hear you, you assure people that this is a real thing. Pitocin. Can we turn it off? And can we turn it down? Because I always tell people you are in total control. If you feel like things are getting out of control, let's turn down that Pitocin. You can turn it off. We have had providers, both nurses and actual providers, tell clients we can't turn it down and we can't turn it off. Once we go up, we're just kind of there. And so I would love to hear your perspective, you know, of 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 the thought that, you know, we're kind of hands-off in birth and people actually yeah. leave their own births rather than providers. Mm-hmm. I don't, like there's no safety or medical indication as to why you cannot decrease or turn off the Pitocin. Like there's no reason. The only reasons why you would not want to turn off or decrease the Pitocin is if you don't want the labor to slow down. 
Mm-hmm. So maybe from a provider standpoint, they're like, no, we got to keep this person on and going. Like you're here for in- induction. So you're going to be induced, you know, we're not, we're not moving backwards here. So I could see them having that reasoning. However, a safety reason for not turning off or turning down the person, absolutely none. Um, and oftentimes, so if you're being induced and you're kind of getting to that transition phase, you're in active labor, your body's going to probably get the hint at that point. So turning down or turning off the Pitocin around seven centimeters when you're really struggling at that point, if you're going unmedicated is really not going to hinder the progress of your labor that significantly. And Hey, if your contractions do end up spacing out to like every 10 minutes apart, then we go up a little, but at least you got that little break. It, I actually do that very often with my unmedicated patients who choose to be induced. Um, we kind of get them to that transition, that active labor, Maybe we're in the shower or we're getting in the tub or we're doing things that that IV is just getting really cumbersome. We take a break from the Pitocin. We labor in the tub. We labor in the shower. We do whatever we're doing. Um, And oftentimes their body already knows what's happening. Like they're seven centimeters. There's no going back at that point. Um, And their body will oftentimes take over. Um, And then sometimes if it slows down, we can easily just put it back on. And that's the beauty of Pitocin is that it can be so gently titrated up or down or changed. And, and that's why it is the, the method of choice in induction. Um, this kind of, I don't even know if this is appropriate, but it's a funny story because um, I chose to, well, I say chose lightly. I chose to go unmedicated with my daughter, Jane, and I also chose to be induced. And there was a point where I was like eight centimeters and my nurse on labor and delivery happened to be like one of my really good friends. And at that point, my Pitocin was at like eight milliunits a minute. And so eight milliliters an hour is what that would go out to be. So really not, like, not that crazy of a dose, but I was just like, I was so done. I was just like, Abby, turn that pit off right now. She's like, okay, okay, okay. And I was like, yeah, turn it off. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't even care. Turn that shit off. Like I was just like, I'm not having one more of that. And then my body just, I was doing it. I didn't need any Pitocin for the, like I knew, I knew I didn't need it at that point. And maybe you don't know that, but maybe your, your provider or your midwife or your doula is like, no, you're doing this. And, and we'll let you know if things space out, but they're kind of get to a point in, in labor where, you know, at least that's how it was for me, where I like, I didn't need that. My body was doing it. And oftentimes it will. Now, if you have an epidural, maybe you won't have that feeling and that's totally fine. And we can just the Pitocin is needed at that point as well. I find the same thing. I mean, oh my gosh, I can't even tell you how many times we have, you know, really had a discussion with providers and decided to either turn it down or turn it off. And same thing happens, right? We find that their bodies are doing it. And then generally, if we turn it off, or turn it down, we're able to turn it completely off. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, it it does kind of require you to be so far along in labor where your body Mm -hmm. does kind of, you know, active labor. Totally. And has gotten the message, like exactly what you said. We ain't going back now. Like this baby's coming out. We're like, in yeah. the- <laughs> really, really in totally. this- do it. Um, yeah. So I just, I thought that was a good discussion. I think that, you know, there's definitely a conversation to be had when we're talking about management of Pitocin use. And a lot of providers sometimes don't provide that space for clients to engage in that conversation and to ask these questions and to truly understand the difference between Pitocin, a synthetic drug, and oxytocin, which is natural, right? And your body, at the end of the day, the the truth is your body does metabolize them very differently. They are going to have different effects inside your body. And so I think as a consumer, we have the right to understand that. So I'm glad we had that discussion. Okay, here is my like number one question that I actually brought you on here to talk about because this is what I learned from you. Let's talk about failed inductions. Like A, who has even heard about that? B, who even thought an induction could fail? And C, how do we manage a failed induction? What does that look like? How do we go mm-hmm. forward? Does it mean we have mm-hmm. to have a C-section? Mm-hmm. What's this look like? So <clears throat> let's talk about this in the sense of elective inductions. Now with a medical induction, there's a reason that your baby needs to be born on that day at that time. So sure, 
there you can have a failed induction with a medical induction. But specifically speaking on elective inductions, you are more likely to have a failed induction if your body isn't ready, your baby isn't ready, your cervix isn't ready. Now, the best way that we can prepare that cervix is making sure that if you are a candidate for cervical ripening, that you get that done. I would never start pedosin on a patient who is one centimeter and thick and hope for the best. I always choose cervical ripening for that reason. I don't care if it's your fifth baby. It's better safe than sorry, in my opinion, to give you the most successful birth outcome. Same. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And the times that you're going to run into failed inductions is, is if that cervix is not prepared. And, you know, it is such an individualized, I look at their birth history. I look at their weight. I look at their birth plan. I look at their cervical consistency and dilation. I don't just say your Bishop's score is seven. Let's not do cervical ripening. You have to look at the patient holistically to decide the best plan. So if you have cervical ripening, you're on the right way. Now, maybe you're like four centimeters in the office and you don't even need cervical ripening. That's fine. Then, you, then you're a better candidate to start with that Pitocin. So the times when we run into failed inductions are patient is one centimeter. They start Pitocin. They've had Pitocin for 24 hours. They say, well, you have to have a C-section. Well, actually you don't. <laughs> if your membranes are intact, which means your water isn't broken, you have no coexisting conditions or risk factors. You're otherwise healthy and you don't have a fever and you're coping with your pain. Maybe come back when your cervix is ready. So you've been in labor, labor, not really labor. You've been on Pitocin for 24 hours and you're still one centimeter. Why are you there? Nothing's happening. You don't have to have a C-section. What's the point? You, you know, maybe you're being induced because, you know, your doctor was afraid that your baby would be too big to fit through your pelvis. So you need to deliver early to keep that baby small. So you either have a, a C-section today or you have a C-section next week when maybe you have a chance at laboring and dilating. And so think and talk with your provider, but know that it is absolutely an option to go home if your induction is not going to plan. Things that would prevent you from going home is signs of infection, or if your water has been broken. So if your water has been broken for that length of time, then that's really not gonna put you in a good position. And now you may be thinking, Becca, you just said to break water early. I said that after cervical ripening, and I said that with the, your provider's best clinical judgment. And I also said, never would I ever start Pitocin on someone who A, did not have cervical ripening, or B, was not at optical, optimal um, cervical dilation or effacement for adding that Pitocin. So I, I think the most common reason for a failed induction is for, dare I say, bad technique <laughs> with inductions. Um, now, otherwise, I would not call it a failed induction. So say, you know, you've got to 10 centimeters and you've been pushing for however long and there's like a malpresentation or a compound presentation, blah, blah. I wouldn't call that a failed induction. You did it. Like your body did it. If something else happens later on down the road in the second stage, I wouldn't necessarily blame that on the induction. But if your provider tells you that you haven't been changing or dilating and like now you need a C-section when you haven't even had the chance to go into labor, that's a failed induction. Um, and there's absolutely ways that that can be avoided. Like I said, with a medical induction, however, we often don't have that kind of time to let you go home for a week or whatever. And so that's why medical conditions often lead to more intervention. Totally. It's not as leisurely. I, I totally mm -hmm. get that. So mm -hmm. as far as a failed induction, we're really defining that as if we try and get your labor going and we literally cannot, that is a failed induction, you guys. But mm -hmm. if you start to go into labor, whether that is, you know, Pitocin induced or the mm -hmm. balloon sent you into labor, mm -hmm. it, once you're in active labor, that is not a failed induction, you guys. Yeah. We're, we're, we're literally talking about your, your labor not getting started. So while mm -hmm. we're on the topic of like, you know, failure, I absolutely despise using the terms failure within birth. I but know. 
Can we talk about um, failure to progress really quick and what that definition is so that we have a good, clear indication of, um, you know, once our labor gets started. Also, I think there's a healthy recognition to talk about the places that we often see these breaks in labor um, for women to, mm -hmm. or birthing people to take a break. So there is technically going to be a stalled labor and an arrest of labor. Um, or another word for stalled labor is a protraction of labor. So um, protracted of the active phase is going to be if you're greater than six centimeters and you're dilating less than one to two centimeters an hour. Um, so, but if you're less than six centimeters and you're in the latent phase, you know, it may take six to seven hours to progress one centimeter. And like, that's totally normal, regardless of what baby it is for you. Um, a An arrest of labor, which is going to be, what did you call it? Um, failure to progress. Failure to progress or an arrest of labor is going to be no cervical change for greater than four to six hours with adequate contractions. And the only way to measure adequate contractions is if you have an intrauterine pressure catheter. So you technically cannot diagnose an arrest of labor unless you can confidently say with an intrauterine pressure catheter that you have been having adequate intrauterine pressure for at least four to six hours or absolutely no cervical change for six hours with inadequate. So sometimes we're like, geez, this girl hasn't changed for eight hours. And then we end up doing the intervention of placing the intrauterine pressure catheter to see the exact pressure of the uterus. And heck, she's barely even contracting, you know, her contraction strength is, is nothing. So then we adjust the Pitocin. We're like, oh, well, no wonder you weren't changing. You were barely contracting, you know? And so, um, it takes a lot of assessment before just jumping to a diagnosis like that. So protracted labor is kind of where you're kind of going through a slow period. And that's normal. Like I said, it may take six or seven hours to go from a four to a five four hours to go from a five to a six. And that's normal. A rest of labor is when you are an active phase arrest is when you're greater than six centimeters. These are the things you have to have. You have to be greater than six centimeters. You have to have your water broken and you have to have an intrauterine pressure catheter over four hours with absolutely no cervical change, or you have to have greater than six centimeters water broken and absolutely no change in greater than six hours with inadequate contractions. So in my practice, I would never diagnose someone with an arrest of labor um, without measuring their uterine contractility. Like I just, I need to know that her uterus is or isn't working because her uterus is like doing her best job and like we're changing position, we're doing everything, you know, we have to begin thinking maybe there's a reason like we're having this rest of labor. Let's think of other causes rather than just going off of a simple six hours. Like the time is honestly negligible. We're thinking of the physiology, what's going on behind the scenes. You know, we're, we're in active labor. Is our uterus contracting? Is our baby in an optimal position? Is that bag of water broken? Does she have a fever? Is she fatigued? Does she need more calories? You know, we're thinking of all of these other things. You can't diagnose an arrest of labor off of a simple time. I was just at a home birth on um, actually Wednesday through Saturday. It was quite a long home birth. <laughs> um, and you just named all the things that, you know, we kind of went through throughout these mm -hmm. days leading mm -hmm. up to her midwives joining us. Um, we kind of did this and you're right. It took us for ever. I mean, it took us days to get to six centimeters and we were mm -hmm. going through all of that. She was mm -hmm. eating, she was drinking, we were moving, mm -hmm. we were resting, mm -hmm. we were in water, right? Mm -hmm. um, we were doing all the things and she did. I mean, it ended up being a beautiful vaginal delivery, but mm -hmm. it, it just goes to show that you're right. The time is negligible. And I think mm -hmm. there's so much to be said about birthing in the hospital system in America that we oftentimes see people put on a time clock. And mm -hmm. as a consumer, you really need to understand that that time is yeah. on your side. Actually, if you, mm -hmm. if you know enough about the time of labor, um, you can actually use it to your advantage. And here's another thing we 
because the latent phase of labor, which is when you're less than six centimeters, so less than six centimeter latent phase, greater than six centimeter active phase, you're less than six centimeters. We don't even quantify that time in any way. It is so freaking slow for some people. Some people, it's like you feel like you're in labor for weeks. Um, we don't, it's not a clinical entity that link, that time in labor. So we don't even, you can't even diagnose an arrest of labor in the latent phase. So if you haven't changed from a three to a four for seven hours, and they're saying that, you know, you're having a failed labor or whatever they're calling it, rest of labor. Um, no, no, no. That's all I have to say. No. <laughs> because you're not even in active labor yet. So how could your labor be arrested if you're not really like, I don't even know. If things haven't actually gotten started in a rhythmic pattern, right? I think there's mm-hmm. such a, people just think that, okay, I'm having, you know, three contractions an hour. This is it. This is go time. No, I mean, yes, mm-hmm. maybe, but also high likelihood that things stop high likelihood that, yeah. you know, it's stop and go for a little bit as your mm-hmm. uterus gets your baby in that final position, as your uterus mm-hmm. practices, as your body gears up for, for mm-hmm. real time. Mm-hmm go time. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just have a misconception with that. And then it, it really yeah. throws for labor. And then we have mm-hmm. providers out there pressuring people on that time clock and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just kind of recipe for disaster. So, mm-hmm. wow. All right. This has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so <laughs> much for joining me. Yeah. What else do you want people to know about inductions? They get a bad rap. Pitocin gets a bad rap, but yeah. either one of those things are bad. They just need to be used with respect and caution and, mm-hmm. you know, evidence-based. They, they really yeah. need to make sure <laughs> that we are making decisions based in research, not mm-hmm. based in past experiences or mm-hmm. fear mm-hmm. or anything else. Yeah. And I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly what basically the bottom line that I want to share with people is that every intervention has a time and a place. And when used, like you said, respectfully, and with the birth plan in mind, they can be amazing tools. We have these tools and when used appropriately, they can make for beautiful births. Um, one of the most popular questions when I talk about inductions that people have is, I hear inductions make your labor worse, or I hear inductions make your labor longer, or I hear, like, there's so much hearsay about inductions, which I believe um, is where a lot of the fear comes in. So I want people to be asking their provider, ask their doula um, questions, ask, don't just take what stories you hear as evidence. Um, really have that conversation and make the choice for yourself. Now, labor hurts. If people tell you it doesn't hurt, I'm sorry, it hurts. You can cope with labor despite the pain. You can use tools to have a good birth experience despite those experiences. Does Pitocin make your labor worse? It doesn't have to. And I hope and if you choose an induction, you don't feel like you had a worse experience because that was your choice. Um, I want you to have the tools to cope with your labor despite choosing to be induced. Now, with the way that the Pitocin works, we're gently titrating it up. Maybe every 30 minutes, we're increasing your dose to get you into that active labor pattern. Whereas with spontaneous labor, maybe your uterus is gradually ramping up over a week or two. And so it's going to feel a lot more natural, dare I say, to kind of go into this labor curve where it's like, oh, I'm kind of getting more Braxton Hicks. Oh, now I'm getting kind of crampy. I'm having period cramps for the last couple of days. Man, now I'm having contractions, I think every 30 minutes. Now they're every 20. And, and so you get this very gradual climb to active labor. However, with an induction, we are bumping that Pitocin up every 30 minutes until you are in active labor. So you go from zero to 100 real quick. It's not that the pain is any different physiologically. It's just that the onset is faster. You have a shorter time to cope with the changes in your labor progress. You may have more difficulty changing positions. You may have more difficulty getting that labor support. You do need continuous monitoring when you're on Pitocin. And so there's a lot of other things that go along with it, but it's not necessarily the fact that you're being induced. It's the other challenges that you have to face 
being in the hospital and being induced. And so as long as you're prepared to face those challenges and you're educated about the things that you're gonna do to cope with your labor and you have a supportive birth team, whether that be your spouse, your labor nurse, and really communicating, like communication is key in all labor, but especially within induction. Let your, know, let your provider know your wants and your wishes. Let your labor nurse, that person, your labor nurse, he or she is gonna be with you for the whole ride. And so making sure that you guys are on the same page is gonna be critical. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of dispel that myth that yeah, things go quicker, it may be more difficult, but it's not going to hurt any more or any less. Either way, you can do it. Like you 1000% can do it either way. Whatever you choose, you're just going to face different challenges in in either choice. I love that so much. I mean, birth hurts, right? You said it, but birth is also mm-hmm. messy. It is messy and it's going to mm-hmm. be messy and it has always <laughs> been messy and it always will be messy. It's part of why I love birth, right? <laughs> birth is so much fun and it's always new and there's no two births the same, but mm-hmm. that is messy. It's mm-hmm. messy for birthing people. It's messy for support people. It's messy mm-hmm. for providers. Birth is just messy. But at the end of the day, you truly do get to be in control of your labor. And I think for me, that is all I want people to walk away with. I am the queen of saying, I don't care how your labor goes. And it's not to be mean, but it truly is. I could not care less how your labor goes. I just Mm -hmm. want you to walk away feeling supported and I will tell you nothing crushes my soul more than, oh, and this like makes me want to cry right now. Nothing crushes my soul more than to know that somebody did not feel supported during their birth. Like it truly, you can hear it just guts me. I, I just can't cope with it. Your birth mm-hmm. is a place where you deserve mm-hmm. the ultimate support mm-hmm. and respect and that you truly yeah. deserve being controlling. Yeah. That's all. I, I love want that. Everybody. I couldn't have said it better myself. I feel the exact same way. And um, oh, where was I going to go with that? I can't even remember, but I wanted to say, oh, I don't want there to be any shame about whether or not you choose to be induced or not, whether or not you choose an induct, um, excuse me, an epidural or not. Like no shame is welcome here. It's all about choice and informed Mm. consent, support and knowing what you're getting into and dispelling that fear. And so I think that's why he, he and I connect so well, because we do have a lot of those very same core values, even though we're in different parts of the country and we are um, in a little bit different role in the birthing room we have the exact same core beliefs which is informed consent and giving that birthing person the experience that they want and that they deserve totally and i think this is so beautiful that there are people all over the country and in different roles that we can come together and collaborate and educate people on their choices and exactly what kind of control you have in labor so Thank you so much for being here. Okay, we talked a lot about your Instagram. You talked about it. I talked about it. So much fun. Where can people connect with you um, and where are you located? Tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about how people can um, can join your journey. So I am a certified nurse midwife and I practice in a rural town in Idaho and I run an Instagram account. It's just my name. It's at Becca Healy CNM, which is my credential and Becca underscore Healy underscore CNM. And my purpose with that account is I share a lot of personal stuff about my family and just being myself. It's kind of my own space, but I also like to answer questions, dispel myths, um, give reassurance, and just post general information about women's health on there. So love to have you come ask your questions. You guys don't forget to go over and find Becca on Instagram. I legitimately get on Instagram sometimes just to see what is going on. on So head on over there. All right, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Becca and I had a fantastic time chatting with you. I hope that you're walking away feeling a little bit more secure in the idea of an induction. I hope that you are feeling more informed on the options that you have when it comes to induction. And I hope that we helped dispel a few myths about induction and helped you feel more confident if your birth tends to need to go that way. All right, guys, happy Tuesday. I will see you again on Friday for another Friday free talk. Until then, 
Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident. Hey there, just a friendly reminder that nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hehe and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.